This is the 10-Minute Law Firm Podcast, brought to you by Rocket Matter. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 10-Minute Law Firm Podcast. Uh, today's episode may be a little bit longer than 10 minutes because we have a very special guest. We have Lara Bazelon. She is a law professor, author, and contributing writer for Slate. Her op-eds and essays have been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Politico, among other media outlets. So, uh, and she also just published a book, Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction, uh, which was published uh, in the fall of 2018. So welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. Um, the reason that we invited Laura to speak with us today is that we are doing a Sexism in the Courtroom series. Um, on our, on our legal productivity blog at rocketmatter.com forward slash blog. And it just so happens that Laura wrote an article in the September 2018 issue of The Atlantic titled, What It Takes to Be a Trial Lawyer If You're Not a Man. So, so Laura, for those who are unaware, can you discuss kind of at a high level some of the challenges that women face in the courtroom that men don't? Sure. I think what some people don't realize is that even though it's 2019, there are conceptions of women that play out in often a negative way in court. So for example, traits that are positively associated with men, when men get angry, they're considered to be impassioned or righteous. And when they show that kind of behavior, it's rewarded. Women, contrary-wise, when they get upset and angry, it correlates to people seeing them as emotionally unhinged and unreasonable. And of course, when you're a trial lawyer in the courtroom, you want access to a full range of emotions. But if you're a woman, you have to be very, very careful in how you portray yourself, how you speak, how your voice sounds. And then of course, there's this whole other realm of your physical appearance and how women are judged differently than men based on, for example, clothing choices and much more rigid expectations about appearance. So um, it's kind of interesting. And when we're talking about that women and the way they react in a courtroom, uh, especially with uh, related to anger, there have been some studies around this, some social science studies. And most recently, uh, Arizona State University did a study. And there's a lot of implicit gender bias with this kind of stuff. So that kind of leads to an issue, right? Facing women's litigators. They have to kind of choose between do they want to stand up for their gender or do they have to do what's in the best interest of their client? Can you discuss this a little bit? Because you do go into this in your article. Yes. And this is something that has always struck me as someone who's been practicing now for almost 20 years, which is that at the core of your obligation is to be a zealous advocate for your client and to do everything you can within the bounds of the law to advance their interests. And so if you feel or believe that behaving and conforming to a certain kind of norm or expectation is going to be advantageous to your client and say getting visibly angry, even though that's what you feel and believe is warranted by the situation would not advance their interests, then you should, I believe, default to what is in the best interest of your client. But at the same time, you want to be authentic and jurors react to people who are authentic and not not fake, not pretending to be something that they aren't. But it's something that sort of dogged me my whole career because I've been told very explicitly by people who mentored me to dress and speak and behave in a certain way because I was told it would advance the interests of my client. And that's something that's always stayed with me. So um, speaking of which, like uh, in, in terms of uh, dress for female attorneys, 
um, you know, there's, you have the implicit bias issue where um, perhaps people unawares are judging men and women differently based on the emotions that they express in the courtroom. Um, but then you have some kind of egregious situations. Um, and you mentioned one in your article about a judge in, in, a, in a hot courtroom in Los Angeles. I mean, do you have any, um, what are your thoughts about some of these more egregious situations that we've heard in the courtroom? Are they still a major problem? Or are they on their way out? I think they are still a major problem, but I also think that more and more judges are getting called to the mat. So I interviewed a woman named Anissa Sir, and it didn't make it into the piece, but she had an interaction with a judge that was quite remarkable. And this was in late 2017, where even though she had appeared in his courtroom numerous times, he basically said, I don't believe that you're a lawyer and you have to prove it to me and you have to tell me what your state bar number is, humiliating her in front of a packed courtroom. And I have to tell you, if a judge had asked me, what is your bar number? I don't believe you're a lawyer. I would have responded by giving them my bar number and probably giving, me, giving them my social security number as well. And that was not her response. Her response was to say, this is inappropriate. You shouldn't be asking me this. It's irrelevant to the argument that I'm making. And then it got really heated and he threatened to hold her in contempt. And she said, if you're going to hold me in contempt, then I would refuse to answer any of your questions and ask for a lawyer. And there was just this showdown. And people who were in the courtroom said it went dead quiet. And that essentially he backed down after huh. she stood up for herself. And I do think it's really interesting that we're seeing this kind of generational shift where young women like Anissa, she's in her early 30s, she's African-American, some of them just aren't having it. And what she told me was that what was going through her mind was, I will not be humiliated and I will not be degraded. I'm a strong black woman and I won't have that happen to me in front of my client that she thought it was detrimental really to the attorney-client relationship. But she also told me at the same time that the judge was screaming at her and was bright red in the face. He was an older white man. She had to really maintain control and be extremely calm and poised, even though she was shaking, thinking she might go to jail. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because we hear these kind of things um, affecting not just female uh, litigators, but also female judges. We talked to the uh, to a woman named Ashley Parker Dunstan, who is a judge. She is a woman of color, and I think she's like in either Georgia or North Carolina. And um, she has people calling her "ma'am" as opposed to "your honor." So yeah, I find that very troubling and unacceptable. I I think all judges should be treated with respect and called "your honor" or addressed more impersonally as the court. And I do see that quite often, especially with male attorneys addressing women as judge or ma'am. And I don't see them doing it in the same way with men. So um, one thing that you mentioned in the article <clears throat> is that there's attributes associated with gender. So uh, for women compassion, warmth, accessibility, and that they could use this to their advantage. Um, and there may be certain advantages in litigating uh, cases involving so-called women's issues. So um, what do you recommend to women who are litigators? Do they go after these opportunities or can this be a trap? Yeah, it's so interesting um, because I think that there in these so-called women's cases, right, where you're talking about on the criminal side a rape or sexual assault or child abuse or on the civil side where you're talking about sexual harassment, for example, or employment discrimination or these med mal cases where you're talking about devices that are harmful to women's reproductive organs, the market is more and more demanding that women be lead counsel or at least second chair and taking on a major role in these trials. And that is because there's this belief that they're more effective, that they're more effective at talking about these 
issues which are quite sensitive, that they are more effective cross-examining other women. And so there's this demand for their services and for them to play a fundamental and important role that doesn't exist in other cases. And I think the dilemma is twofold. One, if this is your passion, that's fantastic. If that's what you want to be, a sex crimes prosecutor or uh, a sexual harassment discrimination employment attorney, that's great. But if your true passion is, say, to take on antitrust cases or intellectual property, and you see this as potentially a stepping stone, I would sound a cautionary note because it's not clear to me that these opportunities then lead to opportunities in other kinds of cases that are typically dominated by men. So let me just give you an example. When the Brett Kavanaugh sexual assault allegations surfaced, he hired a team of women and so did Dr. Blasey Ford. And so what you had was a face-off of two teams of female attorneys. And then if you turn your eye toward the courthouse with, say, Paul Manafort or Michael Flynn or any one of these high-profile cases that are in criminal court, what you see are older white gentlemen representing them going in and out of the courthouse. And you're not seeing the same opportunities for women. And that's just one example. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting uh, on that note. Um, and you talk to um, you talk to let's see if I can find her name here. Um, a woman who works in these mesh cases. This um, these I guess they're class action mesh cases or something like that. And it's it's kind of an example where a woman can kind of work in these larger tort cases, but it's because it's related to a woman's issue. Correct. That is correct. And it was actually, I got interested in this whole area. And in fact, the impetus for the piece was that my sister, my only sister, who's not a lawyer, was a juror in one of these mesh cases. And what my sister told me was that the plaintiff side, the side that was bringing the lawsuit on behalf of the woman who alleged to have been harmed by the mesh, had made a grave error in not having any women on their team. And that they had done, in her opinion, a disservice to their client because when they were trying to bring out her story on direct examination, it was really clear that they were very uncomfortable talking about the case, talking about her body, talking about what had happened to it in a way that she found really ineffective. And then when she contrasted it to the defendant who was representing this huge company, Johnson & Johnson, they had a woman who was basically running the show and she was incredibly effective. And my sister's point was, if you aren't able to really capture a woman's story and draw it out, then you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be in the courtroom. And so I think that jurors sometimes react really strongly to saying, seeing a wall of men when it's this very delicate issue and they're, they're clearly unable to grapple with it. All right. So here's what we're going to do. So we're going to play a game. All right, and this is inspired by, uh, there's, a, there's a subreddit called Explain Like I'm Five. So we're going to assume that, you know, for, for those of the audience listening, if, if you're unsure of implicit bias and you are unsure of what to call somebody in a courtroom, if they are a woman, um, I'm going to say a name and Laura is going to say appropriate or not appropriate. All right, Laura, you ready for this? Let's do it. Okay. All right, let's start easy. Counselor. Appropriate. All right, very good. Sweetie. Not appropriate. Okay, so why not? Well, it's sort of demeaning to say a sweetie to a woman in a courtroom. And I can give you an example. There is a judge, and I cannot believe he's still on the bench because he's about a thousand years old, who was known to be very nasty and acerbic, <laughs> but in a packed oh, courtroom when I asked 
for, I think it was something really basic, like a continuance. He kept cutting me off and I kept trying to make a record for my client. And finally he leaned over the bench and screamed in front of a packed courtroom, honey, did you hear what I said? And it was just one of the lowest, most humiliating moments of my career. So sweetie, honey, no. And in fact, the American Bar Association has passed a rule saying that it's, it's improper to use those terms when you're talking to women. Okay, yes. And uh, also, honey was on my list, but we, since we've already covered that one, we'll, we'll strike that one. So, all right, you ready? Yes. Your Honor. I love Your Honor. Very appropriate. Okay. Girl. Girl's really not great. I think you should save girl for maybe your daughter or your niece for pre-tweens, not for female attorneys in court. Okay. What about more casual gal, as in guy and gal? Guy and gal, not so great. Again, this is more sort of what you would say to your girlfriends when you're emailing them to see if they want to go out for drinks. But for a judge to say, hey, gal, do you want to approach the bench or your opposing counsel to refer to you that way is pretty disrespectful. All right. Um, Ma'am. Okay. So ma'am is an interesting one because if you are, for example, an FBI agent or a police officer, you are trained to call women ma'am. And so when you're cross-examining or draft examining one of those folks on the stand, they're going to call you ma'am. And I think that's appropriate and that's their training. But if you call a female judge ma'am, you are being disrespectful. You should call that person your honor or refer to her office and say the court. Gotcha. Okay. Attorney Bazelon. So assuming, of course, they're talking to you and not somebody who doesn't share your surname. So I think a lot of times in court, I'm called Ms. Bazelon. Ms. Bazelon, do you have anything to say to that? And that's fine. I think as long as you use a title before my name and not just, hey, Bazelon, what do you think? Which, again, seems a little bit disrespectful. Gotcha. It also sounds like it's like on a sports field. Exactly. Um, it does. It's, it's, it does, yeah. So, and then this one is not in terms of, of, uh, of an address of somebody, but this is uh, something that's commonly used to describe um, a, a, a technique used. I don't even want to call it a technique. It, let's call it a career trajectory. Mommy track. Okay, not a fan of mommy track. I feel like, first of all, as just a whole concept, it's flawed. But mommy track is this idea that somehow you can take 80 or 50% and then make partner, which is A, not true, because when you work part-time, you're basically working full-time, just not getting paid. And B, a lot of women who have tried that will tell you that it is the road to nowhere and they eventually get punished and sidelined. So I just don't like the whole concept of it. And the title itself or the term just seems kind of condescending and strange. It, it seems very condescending. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, Here's kind of one thing um, that I'd like to ask you about. And then after that, I'd like to talk to you just for, for a quick moment about your book. But, you know, when I look at social justice causes, I, it can be so discouraging sometimes. But sometimes what I like to do is I try and look at it uh, on a continuum. So can, like from a historical perspective, can you tell us a little bit about like where we are compared to like where we've come and then where you think we need to be going? For female trial lawyers? That's correct. Yeah, specifically sexism in the courtroom situation. Well, I think we're moving in a very positive direction. So we started with the first woman trial lawyer in California, a woman named Clara Shortridge Fultz, excuse me. And 
she faced enormous sexism in the courtroom. Now, this is the 19th century. She had a prosecutor say to the jury that they should discount her arguments because she was a woman and therefore incapable of reason, incapable of being a reasonable human being. So we've gone from there to where we are in the present time, which is much more of the sort of implicit biases that you and I have been talking about, and then some explicit biases, which we've also been talking about, but certainly nothing to that extent. And that said, you know, while there is, there are many obstacles and women are underrepresented in the judiciary, they're underrepresented in big law firms, they're underrepresented in most power positions, they are continuing to make inroads. And I do think that we're at somewhat of an inflection point because as I was mentioning earlier, we're coming up on this generation of women in their 20s and 30s who are really pushing back hard, like the young women I was speaking about earlier. And I do think that that kind of pressure and the numbers of people who are behaving in a much more forceful manner when confronted with sexism is leading us in a positive direction. And I also think that the market is leading us in that direction too, because when you think about who is on a jury these days and how diverse our society is, more and more people are demanding something different and their expectations about what a lawyer is supposed to look like, i.e. a gray-haired, middle-aged guy in a dark suit is shifting. Hmm. Um, and what would you say to you know, young female litigators who, or, or um, you know, women in law school who want to get into the field? Um, it, do, would you recommend mentors? Did you have a mentor or you know, uh, women's bar associations? Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the up and coming, um, what to maybe expect and what to do to maybe help their careers? Yes. So you hit it on the head. I think mentors are absolutely crucial and they don't have to be women. I've been really fortunate to have some incredible female mentors, but I've also had some incredible progressive male mentors who gave me opportunities, who believed in me, who allowed me to make mistakes and move forward, which is also very important. So I don't think you can ever discount that. I also want to say to the women out there who've achieved some level of power and stature, that what is so important for us to do is to offer opportunities to young women and to not think or speak or act from a place of scarcity and think there's only one woman's seat at the table and I'm sitting in it. And if another woman approaches me, she's trying to take my seat. Your attitude has to be, no, I'm going to create more seats at the table so that more women can be sitting with me. And I think it is so important to do that, to collaborate and mutually support each other and give opportunities to younger women rather than being territorial and feeling threatened by them. So that's really good advice. And, and on that note, um, I kind of want to draw attention to another cause that, you're, uh, that you work with, which is you know, wrongful conviction. So... Um, You've worked in this in, in, in a capacity as an attorney, and you also recently worked uh, on this new book, Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Can you talk a little bit about your story in this field and how you came to write the book? Sure. So I directed a small innocence project in Los Angeles from 2012 to 2015. And one of our clients was a man named, his first name was Cash, and his last name was Register. So that was actually his given name, Cash Register. Hmm. And he was falsely convicted in 1979 of murdering an elderly white man, robbing and murdering him. Cash is African-American. And when we got the case, he had been incarcerated for over 
three decades. And we were able to free him in 2013. And I was the lead trial lawyer in that case. So I, I retried that case. It's called an evidentiary hearing, but it's essentially a retrial. And it really changed my life because um, it came, it, it made me think about not just sort of what it took to win and how difficult that was, but also about what happens after, because we have this idea that people ride off into the sunset and it's happily ever after, you're exonerated, you get all this money. But for most people, that's not the case. And it's not just the exonerees who've been horribly impacted, but it's also the victims. And you have to understand that the victims of this family, of this murdered man, sat through this whole proceeding where it was revealed that everything that the police and prosecutors had told them all those years ago was a lie. And so you have harm that is spread out in all different directions, including jurors. One of Cash's jurors contacted me, completely devastated to realize that he had voted for guilt. And so the book is about bringing these people together in a way that allows them to connect with each other and even become friends through this shared experience that they had and taking something that was catastrophic and turning it into a healing experience where they go outside of the criminal justice system and together they work to connect and heal and make their own justice. Well, um, it sounds like a great read. Um, and um, congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you. So, uh, Lara, thank you so much for being with us today. If somebody would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, the best way is you could follow me on Twitter at Lara Bazelon. And you can also connect to me through my job at the University of San Francisco School of Law. So my webpage is up there and all my contact information is there as well. Lara, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is the 10-Minute Law Firm Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review so we can keep bringing you awesome content.